0: Welcome to Louisiana Considered. It's Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. Coming up on today's show, we're going to hear about how one musician is bringing Cajun French to classical music. But first, roughly 106 years ago this month, Congress approved the Volstead Act which was ratified and enacted a month later. You're probably familiar with that act, although you might know it under its popular name, Prohibition. While some Louisianans supported the so-called Noble Experiment, most were unhappy with the idea. Not only has the state long been home to carnival celebrations, where alcohol played a prominent role, but the location of New Orleans And Baton Rouge on the Mississippi River made them prominent port cities for alcohol transportation. For more on the history of prohibition bootlegging and speakeasies in Louisiana, we're joined by Sam Hyde, professor of history and director of the Center for Southeast Louisiana Studies at Southeastern Louisiana University. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Adam. Glad to be here. And Sam previously wrote about this topic for 64 Parishes Magazine. Sam, can you start by telling us a bit more not only about the Prohibition Amendment, but also about the history of the Prohibition Movement in Louisiana? Uh, where in the state was the idea popular? Where was it largely unpopular? Who supported it? Who was against it?
1: Yeah, and you know, Adam, I like the way you did your introduction there because you pointed out that it had support in some areas and then had intense opposition in other areas. And that's uh, something that's very notable here in louisiana just just use louisiana's florida parishes right here in this region um in the first decade of the 20th century you know preceding of course prohibition only three parishes were wet um east baton rouge uh west Louisiana, and st tammany parish the other regions were fiercely dry and so when when this law began brewing up and you had this movement developing and uh you know you had The Women's Christian Temperance Union and other groups, the Anti-Saloon League, there were parts of Louisiana that were horrified by that, but other parts that thought, oh, oh my goodness, this is exactly what we need. We often in this area use the dichotomy in Livingston Parish. The joke used to always be uh, north of I-12 in Livingston Parish, you can't get even a beer on Sunday, you know, you can't buy beer in the store. But south of I-12 in Livingston Parish, you can find bars galore and everywhere else. And it was influenced by the Catholic versus the Protestant dichotomy. So when you get up in North Louisiana and you see the Anglo-Protestants dominant in regions of the Florida parishes and portions of a central part of the state, you see fierce support for Prohibition. But then when you get down into the Catholic regions of the state and New Orleans and Acadiana, and they were horrified by the thought of Prohibition. And took the attitude that you can't make us do it,
0: huh? And once prohibition went into effect, how did Louisianans, particularly our lawmakers, respond to it?
1: Well, again, that broke out along that kind of Anglo-Protestant versus the more Catholic Creole uh, Cajun type attitude. But here, here was Huey Long, you know, from North Central Louisiana, and when famously asked by the mayor of Atlanta what he intended to do about prohibition, Long responded. Not a damn thing. He wasn't going to do anything that cost him votes. Uh, Down in New Orleans, they even found a way to get around it. For a while, they had to keep coming back after him. They declared that in New Orleans, alcohol is no longer alcohol. Instead, it is a food supplement. And I always loved that. (laughs) That, You know, you you can't possibly have fine dining and eat well unless you've got something with a little punch to wash it down.
0: A food supplement. In an article, you stated that a 1926 survey of social workers nationwide identified New Orleans as, quote, the wettest city in America. So tell us how exactly New Orleans continued to have such popular drinking culture despite the ban. Uh, I assume that's part of it.
1: Well, very much so. And in fact, Adam, anybody that has been to New Orleans, you know the centrality of alcohol and that type alcohol fuel parting is to the crescent city and always has been um to to amplify what you were just saying about what what some of these social workers were saying but when the federal agents first came to enforce prohibition uh one of the big names was uh, some of your uh, listeners may have heard him before his name was Izzy Einstein and he was a legendary prohibition officer he really You know, mint it. He enforces federal law. We, We have to abide by the law, but also alcohol is a bad thing. We need to get rid of it. Well, he wanted to see how long it would take him before he could encounter a drink when he got to New Orleans. And he famously reported it took 35 seconds. When his train came in, he got in a cab and he asked the cab driver, he said he waited a full 15, 20 seconds, asked the cab driver, where can you find a drink in this city? And instead of taking him to a place, the cab driver reached under his seat and pulled out a bottle that he had for sale. So 35 seconds.
0: (laughs) You wrote that rum running became a major industry. Can you tell us exactly what rum running is and how it works?
1: Yeah. And the rum running was the non-domestic production of liquor that was used during Prohibition. And it was coming in from all over the place. You know, a lot of it came through Cuba and other regions of the Caribbean. And basically, these were boats that would come in. Initially, they were coming in mostly through uh, Lake Ponch train. And then when the Federals tried to interdict that, it began coming in more from St. Bernard Parish. And I'm sure that will surprise your listeners that there were a lot of people down in St. Bernard Parish. But uh, these people were serious. There was money connected with that. Uh, your listeners that are familiar with Al Capone and what was going on in Chicago, it was a very similar situation, whereas it was coming in from canada there in the north it was coming in from these regions to our south and it was big business and they understood that there were turf wars just like there are with drugs today um it was incredible volume of money generated by this and they were hauling in everything they possibly could the name rum runner came because uh You know, sugarcane production in the Caribbean islands for rum. You know, some people even refer to the American Revolution. I had a professor when I was studying in England who referred to it as the rum smugglers revolt because so much of the sugarcane is turned into rum. And so it became an easy thing to bring it right into the many bayous and marshes of Louisiana, and it would feed the thirst of this region right around here, and then be transported into other areas of the United States.
0: We're speaking with Sam Hyde, professor of history at Southeastern Louisiana University. We're talking about the prohibition era and its impact in the state. Now, what was it about Southeastern Louisiana that made it a popular destination for illegal alcohol smuggling? Is it the geography, the lack of enforcement, Mardi Gras, New Orleans? What were
1: the factors? All of the above. And if you were in favor of prohibition or trying to enforce it, it was a toxic mix down here because people came down just as they do today with the understanding that we're going to bourbon street, you know, and going to this party type central type place. And so it, it drew people that were coming specifically for that. Um, the speakeasies, the legendary speakeasies, they were more an elite type thing, but they were all over new Orleans. You know, some people even count them into more than eight, and 900. Some people say it was closer to 1500, but they also had, Appeals to poorer, more common people. Some of them will be called literally soft drink stands, where they would literally be much like a lucky dog vendor out in the streets today. Here was a guy pushing around a little cart and he's selling drinks to people on the street. And when you think about the number of federal agents compared to the people that drink, there was such a minuscule amount of them, they simply couldn't keep up. So they would close one down over here, another one would pop up over here. And at first, initially, the most elite restaurants in New Orleans and in other cities of the state, they would openly sell alcohol. You would have to ask for it in the right way with a nod and a wink, and especially if you were a regular, you you could get it masked with something else and everything. And the feds were pretty good at targeting that, and they cracked down on that. But the speakeasies where you knew the password or you knew the right door to come to or you knew the right person to speak to, they were simply everywhere. Now, the people out in the countryside of Louisiana who wanted a drink, they had to do something different when they had to deal with the the moonshiners, you know, and and the people who were manufacturing it on their own. There became a whole cottage industry that they called blind tiger whiskey. And it took me years to get a, a firm grip on what they meant by blind tiger, because it, it it seemed to mean several different things. And and finally we drew it all together. And what blind tiging meant was you were not paying the tax. So whether you were drinking uh, moonshine that was being made, and they actually, one of the most crude forms of it, they called it bust head. And you can only imagine what that must have tasted like and what it did to you in terms of a hangover the next day to get the name bust head. But like the swamps around Manshack and everything, in north and outside of New Orleans, and outside of Baton Rouge and everything, they were full. We, we have several here in the center right now that are stills that were used. That There were just so many of them, they just abandoned some of them. But they produced this stuff that was below off the radar for paying the taxes. And therefore, whether you were drinking the moonshine, the bust head, or you were drinking illegally brought in rum running type whiskey, it was all called blind tiger because it was avoiding paying the federal tax. And of course, to the feds, there was this component of the WCTU, you know, the temperance advocates and everything like that. But there was also the component of their avoiding paying the tax and that's federal revenue that we need. So there was a double whammy going after
0: You mentioned that there's just so much going on in the cities that it is hard for the federal agents to keep up. Now, of course, it's hard to get away with everything. So were there any prominent raids on the bars, on the smugglers?
1: There were, and a lot of very prominent ones. And I won't single them out by name, but when you think of some of the largest restaurants down there in New Orleans, They were the target of types of raids where they would plant agents in there. They would see they're obviously selling these drinks like we've been hearing, and they would come and stage this mass raid. Those were usually handled kind of quietly and with dignity and things like that where, okay, there's going to be a fine on the establishment, don't do it again, and it kind of pushes them a little further underground. Other places where they were trying to raid uh, warehouses where like the rum that was being imported was being stored and things like that. Those were huge events where they're coming in with the the G-men type effects, you know, heavily armed, and they're going to be confronted by people who are determined to try to hang on to in one very famous incident where they they brought in agents from all over the country and they swooped in and they did this mass sweep of New Orleans and just destroyed thousands and thousands and thousands of kegs of alcohol. And one guy quipped in the newspaper the next morning that, yeah, they didn't do enough damage and he pointed out that he had been able to find three drinks on the way in just to work that morning so even the their best efforts had very minimal effects uh, alcohol was so ubiquitous in louisiana during prohibition but you know adam i'll say one other thing the prohibition uh effort uh also was in in some ways beneficial especially like to women you know the women still could not vote in this era you know they um that here was an opportunity for them to be vocal, to influence politics. Um, a lot of these people that got got their start with the WCTU, Women's Christians Temperance Union, and other things like that, that went on to become suffragettes, it empowered that. Um, race relations, as you can imagine, it hardened them in many ways. A lot of the local sheriffs and everything said, the reason we're cracking down on this is because we don't want these black men getting drunk and, you know it causing trouble and everything. Of course, the white men were causing just as much, if not more trouble and everything, but that's the way they tried to cast it in that era. So Prohibition had a big social rock on Louisiana and the rest of the South and nation, um, just as much as it affected federal law.
0: You mentioned some of this with politics and suffrage. What do you think were the lasting impacts of the prohibition movement, not just in Louisiana, but across the country? What ways might we see those impacts today that we previously might not have thought about?
1: Well, in addition to things like giving opportunity to women that they'd never had before, one of the things that I would see, and I, and I talk about this a lot when, I, when I'm doing presentations on this, is the demise or diminished respect for federal law. In advance of prohibition, uh, people tended to now we've got, of course, the case of the Civil War, where there were some people who snubbed federal authority. But with a very firm hand, they were broken um, and and people tended to respect and honor the laws in a different type way. Then you came and took something very dear to them. And I remember while I was studying in Europe, I went to a play in Amsterdam one time. And it was a two person play. And they were mimicking revolution. When they come to the Americans, they would mock the Americans. And right at the end of the play, they came down with one beam of light on one actor on one side of the stage and one beam on the other. And she said, you'll never revolt. And then it went back to him and said, as long as they don't raise the price of beer by two pence. And what they meant by that, and if some of you that are old enough to remember, when the tobacco companies came under attack, political attack. Down here, they were literally airing commercials that were saying they're coming for your beer next. They're already after your tobacco. They're coming for your beer next. And that was to get these people's back up and going, oh, no, you're not going to take our beer away. And that, in some ways, is linked all the way back to prohibition. It was seen by millions of Americans as a mistake, as a crass intrusion into the private lives of people And when you think today, half the people you meet are going to say government has no business telling me what I need to be doing with my personal life. They did it anyway. They enacted it. It was federal law for more than a decade. And people felt offended at that. And to me, that's one of the biggest legacies of prohibition that since that time, we have not seen the same respect, reverence, and awe towards the federal government and federal law. And much of that can be traced back to prohibition, in my opinion.
0: Oh. Definitely something relevant to politics today. Sam Hyde, Professor of History and Director of the Center for Southeast Louisiana Studies at Southeastern Louisiana University. You can read his full article on the Prohibition Era in Louisiana on 64parishes.org. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Adam. RKF and WWNO. This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Adam Voss. When you think of Cajun French and music, the first thought that comes to mind might be zydeco, the accordion, the fado do, the various folk styles. But one local musician is engaging in a project to bring Cajun French to classical music. Mary Grace Ellerbee is a pianist from Zachary, Louisiana. She is the inaugural recipient of the Everett G. Powers Fund for Creativity Award from the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge. Welcome to the program.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Adam.
0: And Mary Grace Ellerbe is giving a recital of her latest work, Côtre Cadian. It's the world premiere of the work this Thursday at the LSU School of Music. Mary Grace, Gumbo de Musique, the Cajun-French Art Song Project. This is a project you're engaging. Tell me about this project and why did you want to pursue it?
2: Yeah, so this project, actually, like many things, uh, kind of was born during the COVID-19 lockdown. I was finishing my last semester at LSU, had graduated. I always had an interest in ancestry, but with all the time in the world, I had a deep dive hard, <laughs> particularly about my father's side, because I had heard growing up, you know, the Boudreaux and Tibeta jokes from my grandpa, and or my papa, as I call him, and a few Cajun phrases here and there, um, but for the most part, he didn't speak Cajun French. So I was a little bit curious and realized, oh, I actually do have Cajun ancestry. So that sparked even more. I wanted to know more. I wanted to learn the language because I knew how hard people work to keep the culture and the language alive in Louisiana. Uh, I really wanted to do Cajun French art song while putting a different spin in uh, adding a, a new way to preserve the language and continue to document and uh, educate and just keep the language alive.
0: Yeah. You mentioned diction. What is the difference between singing Cajun French and speaking standard French? There are diction considerations. What are the concerns when it comes to the creative process?
2: Right. When it comes to the diction I mean, first of all, Cajun French is a patois, it's a dialect of standard French. So there's already a lot of overlap um, between how we would speak or sing uh, standard French. But with it being a patois, it has a little bit of its own flair. And so in Louisiana, things are a little bit more spread. The vowels are um, not quite as tall, which is a big thing with singing standard French diction is there's such an emphasis on Uh, a pure, tall vowel constantly. So that already is a big difference between the standard French and Cajun French. Um, Dropping consonants at the end of words, uh, little things like that, that if one is to sing in Cajun French, uh, can be considered to really bring out the difference.
0: You mentioned examining your Cajun heritage, preserving the language and the reasons people and our parents' and grandparents' generation might not themselves speak Cajun French. What is it that you want to bring to audiences with your music, and what do you want to contribute to the preservation of the language?
2: Right, exactly right. Because of history in Louisiana and the way that the community was trying to adapt upon settling from Canada, there were a lot of people in older generations of my grandparents and older generations that either were not taught the language or could have been punished for speaking. So that kind of, as we have seen, has led to a decline. And so I think it's really important um, as part of my performance of this work, and it's why I want to give a lecture recital about it, is to be able to educate people about how this history has affected where we are today with the language, and at the same time being able to contribute And it's okay to modernize uh, the way we do things, because like you mentioned before, you know, the Zydeco, everybody knows that. But you also have to come to Louisiana oftentimes to hear it. Um, And so by using a medium such as classical music that is so broad and globalized in a sense and has also hundreds of years of documented art, that is just an excellent way to preserve and continue to live on. Mm -hmm.
0: And speaking of using the classical music medium to preserve Cajun French, in what ways do you think you can diversify the classical vocal repertoire?
2: I have found that this has been definitely a new venture when it comes to uh, classical music, and in particular art song. There is new music being written, but as a trend, what is being performed the most often is also several hundreds of years behind. But as far as um, French art song is concerned, it is by composers like Debussy, Le Foray, um from France. And there's actually a very minimal amount of art song out there that is existent beyond European uh, central focus. And that's what textbooks are written about. That's what students study when they're studying diction. And so having an American perspective that is not in English, which is a big thing. So I think that's very important that now we can add this to the calendar and then show a different perspective, uh, especially for people that are studying French. Uh, I I think it's a bit more relatable in some ways.
0: You're premiering this work here in South Louisiana. Um, I know that mainland France, they have a lot of efforts to draw in their overseas territories, their current territories, and former territories to make sure they're part of the the French culture. Do you have any aspirations? Do you you think there's any interest in this outside of South Louisiana?
2: I think so. I have actually been very surprised to see the metrics with the locations of where uh, people are listening from. It's been over 70 countries. So I know for sure that There is definitely an interest um, and I would love to be able to take this to other countries, Canada, France. It would be great to be able to share this and develop even more of the collaborative effort that the state is trying to continue to develop.
0: You mentioned the Everett G. Powers Fund for Creativity Award, its goal of producing new ways to represent the world. In what ways do you see yourself engaging that objective?
2: I, the biggest thing for me goes back to just redefining, continuing to evolve the way that Cajun music is perceived, the Cajun soundscape, if you will, because for so long it is specifically known as uh, fiddles and accordion by contributing a new effort, creating a new way for people to engage with Cajun French and Cajun music um, by using another type of popular medium
0: mary grace ellerby performs the premiere of her work Catra Chanson cadian this thursday at lsu's school of music mary grace thanks for being here today
2: great thank you so much
0: and that's louisiana considered for a wednesday our managing producer is alana schreiber our assistant producer is aubrey purcell our engineer is garrett pittman You can catch Louisiana Considered Mondays through Fridays at noon and 7 p.m. on this station. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening.